Well, today we continue our series in Peter's first epistle, and we come to our text today, which is verses 20 and 21. It says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The he at the beginning of verse 20 is the Christ that is referred to in verse 19. And our text today concludes a long sentence in the Greek language which began in verse 17, five verses. And they initially answer the question, why should we live a holy life? Verse 14 says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Why should we live a holy life? Well, because your father is also your judge. Remember verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Why should you live a holy life? Because your Father is also your judge. Why should we live a holy life? Because we have been redeemed at such great cost. Verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. This one who redeemed us at such great cost, a cost that is greater than silver or gold or any earthly treasure, the cost was the lifeblood of Christ, the sinless lamb of God. And that brings us to our text today in verses 20 and 21, and that expands upon the theme of the previous verses in answering the question, how great is the one who gave his life's blood to redeem us? And the answer is, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so in our text today, we see the glory of the Redeemer, the one who has redeemed us at such great cost, the one who has ransomed us, not with silver or gold, but with his own precious blood. And we shall endeavor to see, number one, the glory of his person, number two, the glory of his Father, and number three, the glory of his redeemed ones. First of all, the glory of his person. We're told in the middle of verse 21 that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. He obviously is one who has glory. What, however, is glory? We need to understand what we're talking about here. When we think of glory just by itself, we generally think of something visible. We think of the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament that bright shining cloud that manifested the presence of God in a special way, or the glory of Jesus Christ in his transfiguration when his whole being shined with a glory that evidenced that he was indeed God come in the flesh. And this is one of the manifestations of the glory of God, this shining light, this this uh, blazing shining light, so pure that nobody can dwell in the full force of that light, so pure, so intense it is. But that is really just one manifestation of the glory of God, because glory is whatever exalts God. Glory is whatever reveals His true nature. Glory is whatever displays His attributes and shows Him for who He truly is, the great God of eternity. A display of God's wisdom is his glory. A display of God's love is his glory. A display of God's power is also his glory. All of these things are glory. And we are told that God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, has glory, just like God the Father has glory. 
There's first of all a reference to his pre-incarnate glory and then his veiled glory and finally his restored glory. His pre-incarnate glory is referred to in these words foreordained before the foundation of the world. He indeed, we read in verse 20, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Speaking of Christ, referring back to verse 19. Foreordained before the foundation of the world. That word translated here, foreordained, is in most places translated foreknown. It is the same Greek word that is used, for example, in Peter's opening words, when he says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, grace grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Peter tells his readers that they, as the children of God, were elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. They were foreknown by God. That has, however, created some misunderstanding in the minds of some people because foreknown can have the idea of prognosis, to know ahead of time. And it may have nothing more than that idea when it refers to people. Several times in the New Testament, we are told that somebody knew something before it happened. Somebody was given understanding of something that was going to happen in the future. And in that way, they foreknew something. They knew it ahead of time. But when this word is used of God, it has a much stronger meaning, a much fuller meaning. And that's so clear in the text before us that the translators of my version changed the word from foreknown to foreordained, because obviously that's what is meant by the word in this particular place. Jesus Christ was indeed foreknown before the foundation of the world. Well, of course he was. God certainly knew who he was before the foundation of the world. God knew that he was going to die on the cross before the foundation of the world. But the question is, is that all there is to it? Did God only know ahead of time that that was going to happen? Obviously, something more is in view here. God knew it was going to happen because God planned it to happen. God purposed it to happen. God destined it to happen. And that's what foreknown means in this text. And I would submit to you that that's what foreknown always means when the one who is doing the foreknowing is God. Of God, this word means purposed ahead of time, determined ahead of time, planned and brought about his plans ahead of time. Because with God, to predict and to predestine are one and the same. The reason that God can predict unerringly is because he is simply telling us what he has planned ahead of time. And whatever God plans ahead of time, he always brings to pass unerringly in time. And so, of course, he knows what's going to happen ahead of time because he planned it to happen. And he, with his omnipotence, brings it about according to his plan. And that's what is in view here. Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. That is, he was appointed to be the Savior of mankind before the foundation of the world, which is an idiom that is found a number of times in our New Testament and means before creation, before time began, before earth's history was set into motion, the foundation of the world, the beginning of history. We find that phrase, for example, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 50. It says that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. The blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. The blood of all the prophets that has been shed from the beginning, from creation, from the beginning of earth's history, shall be 
laid at the feet of those who have rejected the prophets and brought about their death. And so the foundation of the world is the beginning of history. And it tells us here that Jesus Christ, therefore, was appointed by God to be the Savior of the world before the world was created, before time ever began. Now that certainly raises some interesting questions and opens up some avenues of exploration which our time this morning will not allow us to get into. But this is telling us something of the pre-incarnate glory of Christ. He was the one chosen in advance to bring about redemption. And why is that? Because of his great worth. Because he's the only one who could do this work. Because he was the Lamb of God without blemish and without spot. And being therefore one who was of infinite worth, greater than the worth of silver or gold or any material possession in all the world, because of his great worth, because of who he was, he and he alone could have been appointed to become the Savior of the world. And this speaks of who he was in the beginning, who he was before he came to earth, who he was before the world was created, the glorious, infinite Son of God. It reminds us of what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer when he said in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Some of you will remember my preaching on that text not too many months ago on a Sunday night about the pre-incarnate glory of Christ, the earthly veiling of His glory, and then the restoring of His glory in His ascension back to heaven. And that is exactly what Peter is referring to here. His pre-incarnate glory. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But secondly, His veiled glory, because it goes on to tell us that He was manifest in these last times for you. Chosen to be the Redeemer before the foundation of the world. This eternal, infinite, glorious Son of God. The second member of the triune Godhead. But in time, He was manifested for you. In time, He came to earth. Chosen in eternity past, but revealed in time, is what Peter is saying. The pre-existent, pre-incarnate Son was manifested at a moment in time, in earth's history, after, obviously, the creation of the world, which is what Paul is talking about in Galatians 4, when he says in verse 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons." When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son. He was the Son of God before He became the Son of Mary. God sent forth the one who was His Son. And He became born of a woman. Became flesh. Became the Redeemer. And so this one who was chosen in eternity past and had glory with the Father in eternity past came in the passing of time in the Incarnation. He came to earth as a babe. He came to earth by way of a virgin's womb. He came to earth by way of a virgin's conception. And when Christ came to earth, that was both a revelation and a veiling. There were aspects of the coming of Christ that revealed to us God. But in order to do that, in order for Christ to be able to show God to man, he had to veil his glory. Because the glory of God is so great that sinful men in the presence of glory of God would be destroyed. And so in order to show us the Father, he had to veil his own glory. 
many of the expressions of his deity. He did not cease to become God, but he ceased to display the attributes of his deity, which are his glory. Those things that that manifest him to be God, those things that show him to be God, those things that, that make him so conspicuously glorious, much of that had to be veiled for him to be able to walk on earth among men and not destroy the very men that he had come to to redeem. And so, no wonder Charles Wesley wrote, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Veiled, but see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. You can see something of the Godhead in the man Christ Jesus, but you can't see a whole lot because he had to veil his deity in order for us to see anything. And so he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In these last times. That phrase, last times, is a synonym with other similar phrases that you'll find in the New Testament, such as last days or end of ages. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in various ways spoke in time past, time past, to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, last times, last days, the same period of time, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. The writer of Hebrews is referring to exactly the same thing that Peter is referring to. In these last times he was manifested to you. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. His Son is the revelation of God, the final revelation of God. Having spoken, spoken, spoken by the prophets in these last days, He speaks to us by His own Son. And thus we also read in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. There's that phrase again. But now once... At the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. At the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When did Christ come and die? At the end of the times, the last times. When did Christ come to die? At the end of the ages. When did Christ come to to die? In the last days. And if you will trace those phrases throughout the New Testament, you will find that this is exactly so. The last days were ushered in with the coming of Christ the first time. Sometimes people say, well, I really believe we're in the last days. You're right. But you don't mean by that what the Bible means by that, probably. We've been in the last days ever since Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. These are the last days because Christ inaugurated the last days, the last period of time, the last ages, the last age of unredeemed creation, the last period of earth's history under the curse of sin. You say, all right, there are apparently ages or times, more than one. How many are there? I'm not sure, but I know this is the last one. Maybe there are three. From creation to the flood. That would certainly be one pretty distinct and long period of time. And then possibly from the flood to the first coming of Christ would be another distinct and long age, a long period of time. And then from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, the last period, the last age. I don't say that with any dogmatism. I don't know how many ages there are, but I know that this one is the last one. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. 
And so his pre-incarnate glory before the world was created, his veiled glory when he became a man, when he became a babe in a manger and walked on earth and died on the cross. But then thirdly, his restored glory, because we go on to read that God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that is restored his glory, raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And I remind you that the resurrection of Christ from the dead is the capstone of the Christian faith. That is a cardinal doctrine of God's word. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe that God has raised him from the dead. You say, well, I thought I had to believe that He died on the cross for my sins. Well, that probably is implied. Obviously, he isn't raised from the dead until first he dies. You have to die in order to be resurrected. But isn't it interesting that in this particular presentation of the gospel, Paul doesn't even mention believing his dying on the cross, but he goes straight to the capstone of the Christian faith, the resurrection from the tomb. If you would be saved, you have to believe In the bodily resurrection of Christ. You have to believe that God raised him from the dead. Because his resurrection, number one, demonstrates that his ransom was accepted. We are redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. How do we know that when Christ laid down his life's blood, that that was a sufficient payment to redeem us from our sins? Because God the Father raised him from the dead. That, that was the receipt signed by God Almighty, paid in full. And so his resurrection demonstrates his ransom was accepted by God. And his resurrection demonstrates that the God of the Bible is the true and the living God. We live in a pluralistic age in which some people want to tell us that Any God and every God is the same God, and it doesn't matter what you call God or what he's like, what you think he's like, how you define him, who who you think he is. As long as you believe in God, that's all right, and everybody who believes in God believes in the same God. That's not what the Bible teaches. And of these various gods who claim to be gods, none of which are truly God, but of the various gods that make claims to be God, how can we tell which is the true God? The one who raised Jesus from the dead. That's the true and living God. Hear him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Because, you see, a crucified Christ is not enough. If we don't have a living Savior, we don't have a Savior at all. Everything about our salvation is fulfilled and culminated in the resurrected Christ. It is as Christ was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven that he is seen now to be sovereign Lord. And from that position of power on the throne of God in heaven, he has continued to direct the affairs of his redeeming work down through these 2,000 years of earth's history. It is because Christ rose from the dead and went back to the Father that he is now our advocate before the Father's throne. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. He's our advocate. He pleads our case. He tells the Father when the accuser comes to point the finger at us and say that one has sinned and deserves to be condemned. The Son is right there to represent us, to be our advocate and say, Father, I shed my blood for that one. His sins are atoned. I redeemed him. And thus in heaven, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we don't have an advocate in heaven. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, there is no propitiatory sacrifice that has redeemed us from our sins. 
Christ did rise from the dead. And rising from the dead, Christ did ascend back to heaven. And ascending back to heaven, Christ was exalted to the throne of God, to the place of preeminence and glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. And so we see the glory of the Son, the glory of his person. But secondly, we also see the glory of the Father. And that brings us into the mystery of the Trinity. And in our text, we have reference to God the Son by the various pronouns that are used that refer back to Christ in the preceding verse. And we have references to God, and when we find the word God in the Bible, sometimes that obviously refers to the triune Godhead. But when it is in contrast with God the Son, it generally is pointing us to the person of the Father. And that's the kind of contrast we find in the language of our text. He, that is Christ, the Son, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God. Of course, Christ is God. So believing in God here must mean God the Father, who raised him from the dead. God the Father raised his Son from the dead, and gave him glory. God the Father gave glory, restored glory to his Son, so that your faith and hope are in God. God, the triune God, of course, but God the Father, particularly in this particular text. And so, not only do we see here the glory of the Son, but we also see the glory of the Father. And how do we see the glory of the Father? We see it in his sovereign administration. We see it in his self-revelation, and we see it in the exaltation of the Son. We see it, first of all, in his sovereign administration. If Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, who foreordained him? He was foreordained. He didn't foreordain himself. He didn't appoint himself, did he? He was foreordained by another. By whom? Well, obviously, by God the Father. And in the inner workings of the triune Godhead, we generally find that the Father is represented as the one who purposes and plans and directs. The Father is the administrative head of the Trinity. In one manner of speaking, no one of the three members, the three persons of the Trinity, are in higher rank than any of the others, but in, in the workings of redemption and the way they relate to one another, the Father is the administrative head, and He is the one who plans and purposes and proposes, but always within the counsel of the Trinity, and there's always perfect harmony and unity among the persons of the Trinity. But the Father seems to take the lead in these things, and the Father directs. It is the Father who sent the Son, For God so loved the world that he, what, gave his only begotten Son. A reference, obviously, to God the Father. God the Father gave his Son. That's the administrative headship of God the Father. God the Father sends the Son. God the Father sends the Spirit, although there are some texts that make it clear that the Son sends the Spirit. And so we come to the conclusion that it's actually God the Father and God the Son jointly that send the Spirit. But that takes us into another realm that we'll bypass for the moment. But we see the glory of the Father in His sovereign administration because it was the Father who foreordained the redemptive work of Christ. He planned, He purposed, He appointed the Son to be the Redeemer. And therefore, the very fact that He purposed He foreordained the Son to be the Redeemer, gives glory to the Father, because the Father is the one who purposed and planned our redemption. But we see it not only in His sovereign administration, but also in His self-revelation. Because the Son came to reveal something, didn't He? He was manifest in these last days, or last times for you, who through him believe in God. 
who through him, that is, in, through Christ, believe in God. Why did God send the Son? So that men might believe in God. And if we're maintaining our distinctions here, then we would have to say, so that men might believe in God the Father. Why did God send the Son? So that men might come to believe in God the Father. Though, of course, in believing in God the Son, we are believing in God the Father. We can't really distinguish those or separate those. But nevertheless, that's what is implied here, is it not? And so, who through him, that is Christ, believe in God. That is a pretty good and concise definition of saving faith. What is saving faith? It is believing in God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way to savingly believe in God. You say you believe in God? You have to believe in him through Jesus Christ. You must believe in Christ if you're going to have saving faith in God. That's a good, concise definition of saving faith. But this is how God brings people to believe in Him. How does God bring fallen sons and daughters of Adam to faith in the one true and living God, the Creator of the universe? He sent His Son to become a man, to be wrapped in sinful flesh, to reveal God to the world, to reveal God in the flesh to the world. And in that way, he brings people to believe in God. It's a wonderful thing. We read, for example, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Word, of course, becomes, as we find in this passage, another name for God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God reveals Himself in the Son so that we might come to believe in God. That's why He sent the Son so that we might become believers in God. Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He wasn't taking anything that wasn't his. That's what robbery is, taking something that doesn't belong to you. He wasn't taking anything that wasn't his by claiming to be God. He was God. He wasn't taking something that didn't belong to him to say he was equal with God. He was equal with God. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is sovereign deity. For what purpose? To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. This work of redemption, God sending His Son, was so that men might believe in God. This work of redemption, God sending His Son and making Him glorious in His resurrection and ascension back to heaven and giving Him all glory and honor and having the whole universe bow before Him. And to acknowledge him as Lord, all of that redounds to the glory of God the Father. It comes back to God the Father, ultimately, does it not? That's what we are told. And that's because Christ was the revelation of God himself. We read it earlier in Colossians 1.15. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Firstborn is not birth order, it is a position, the, the supreme position. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the, 
He's the highest ranking one over all creation. But who is he? The image, the very image of the invisible God, we are told. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we read, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And indeed it is. We can't even get into these things without our heads spinning. The mystery of godliness, the mystery of the triune Godhead. God was manifested in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. Justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. God was manifested in the flesh. So Christ was the revelation of God. That hymn of Wesley goes on. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. And so the glory of the Father is seen in His sovereign administration. The glory of the Father is seen in His self-revelation. He reveals Himself in Jesus Christ, and that brings Him glory. And the glory of the Father is seen in the exaltation of the Son, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Why does the Father give the Son glory? Well, ultimately, as we've already seen, because it comes back to Him. 1 Corinthians 15.20, But now Christ is risen from the dead, that resurrection again, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, that's true, in Adam all died, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Because a man brought sin and death into the world, it took a man to redeem fallen men, and to reverse the effects of the curse, of the fall, of death. But it took a perfect man. It took, it took the God-man to do that, but it took a man. That's why Jesus had to become a man. He had to become incarnate. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Which is to say everybody who's in Adam dies. Everybody who's in Christ lives. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. <coughs> Excuse me, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, is that it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Christ puts all things under his feet, except, of course, God the Father, who gave him this authority. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. When everything's wrapped up, And there's no more rebel running free in the universe. When every knee has bowed and every tongue has confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus Christ from the throne of glory has subdued all things under his feet. Then we read he's going to turn and deliver up the kingdom or deliver back the kingdom to his heavenly father. It seems that as a reward for the work of redemption, the Son receives preeminence in the Trinity, at least before men, for a period of time. But when things are all said and done and it's all over, the Son then returns that preeminence to the Father and submits himself administratively to the Father once again. And that's the way it will be through all eternity. Great is the mystery of godliness. But that's the glory of the Father. Finally, we see the glory of His redeemed ones in this text because we share in His glory. Now, the glory of redeemed ones are different from the glory of God because the glory of God is intrinsic glory. It's a manifestation of who He is 
his nature, his being. Our glory is borrowed glory. Our glory is bestowed glory. Our glory is gracious glory given to us who do not deserve it. Our glory is not displaying what we are, but elevating us to what we are not and what we could never have been apart from the work of Christ and the grace of God Almighty. But in this text, Peter, after exalting God in such a wonderful way, turns attention from the Redeemer to the redeemed. He, indeed, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Several things in this text point to the redeemed ones. Christ, foreordained before the foundation of the world, was manifest in these last times for who? For you, who through him believe in God. So that your faith and hope are in God. And so the glory of his redeemed ones is glory as the objects of the Father's love. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But we were included in this plan He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but so were we, going back to chapter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreordination of God the Father. Christ was central in the redemptive plan of which Peter's readers were also chosen to be a part. Christ was chosen to be the Redeemer. We were chosen to be the redeemed. Is what Peter is showing us here. It's an amazing thing. So we are the object of the Father's love and the recipients of the Son's revelation. Why did the Son come to manifest God? He was manifest in these last times for you who through Him believe in God. That's why He came. Because you are the objects of the Father's special love. Because He came to redeem those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so as objects of the Father's love, we become followers of the revealed Son. And Christ is the main focus of our faith, as we've seen. Through Him we come to believe in God. We become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But through faith in Christ, we come to have faith in God. Through Him. Through Him. I've lost my text here. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so through faith in Christ, we also have faith in God. That's what Jesus was saying in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. If you come through Him, you come to the Father. If you believe in Him, you believe in the Father. If you come through Jesus Christ, then your faith and your hope are in God, the true and living God, the one who really has made promises that He will keep to all for all who trust in Him. And so we become recipients of the promised glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope are in God. And it's because of the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ demonstrates for us that God has power. He who raised Christ from the dead is able to raise us from the dead as well. There's your hope. Your faith are in God. Your hope is in God. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, said Paul, then we are of all men most miserable. Of course. Because our hope is in the future. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in heavenly glory. Our hope is being raised with Christ to be with Him forever 
in heaven someday. That's our heavenly hope. And it all depends upon the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And if he has power to raise Jesus from the dead, then of course he has power to raise us from the dead. And he was, if he was faithful to the promises that he made to his son to raise him from the dead, if he would die for the sins of his people, then he will be faithful to the promises he made to us to raise us from the dead. So, beleaguered pilgrims that Peter is writing to, who are facing persecution and trials, and maybe some are even facing a martyr's death, Do not despair. The one who raised Jesus from the dead can raise you as well. The one who promised to raise Jesus from the dead has promised to raise you as well. So your faith and hope are in God. And when he raises us from the dead, we're going to share in the glory of Christ. We're going to be given a measure of Christ's glory. And so his resurrection becomes the assurance of ours. And his resurrection becomes the pattern of ours. We're going to rise from the dead like Christ raised from the dead. He rose from the dead how? In a glorified body. How are we going to rise from the dead? In a glorified body. What does that mean? Well, it means we're going to shine. It means that, no doubt, but a whole lot more. We're going to have the body of the incarnate Son of God glorified. We're not going to have the attributes of God the Son and His deity, but we're going to have the attributes of God the Son in His glorified humanity. He was raised in His body, in His humanity, as a sinless man, a perfect man, a never-dying man, and many other things that could be said about him. We know how he walked through walls, doors being shut, and so forth. And all of that is an indication of what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. Our resurrection bodies are going to be able to inhabit heaven, to inhabit eternity. They are going to be glorious beyond our, our wildest dreams and far beyond our greatest expectations And we're going to share in that glory with him. The glory of the Redeemer is going to become the glory of the redeemed. This is a heavy text, isn't it? But it's a glorious text, isn't it? I hope you haven't gotten bogged down in the details. There's a lot here. I've just laid it on you, one item after another. Heavy, heavy, heavy truth. But I hope you understand how wonderful this is, how glorious this is. I hope your your soul rises to these truths. I hope your mind has been helped by the Holy Spirit to grasp a hold of these truths. And what should all this do in closing? Well, it should cause us now to love and serve Christ better. When we reflect on the greatness of His person, who he really is, who came to die for us. When we reflect upon the greatness of his love, that he who is the eternal, glorious Son of the triune, Son of the Father, member of the triune Godhead, was willing to condescend to take upon him flesh in order to redeem us. How could we do anything but love him and serve him with all of our hearts? It ought to cause us to draw near to God in close fellowship. If Jesus Christ came to bring us to God, if Jesus Christ came so that we could know God and through Christ could believe in God and fix our hope in God, if that's why Christ came, then obviously we can draw near to God, the unapproachable God, the God that no one could draw near to, but we can draw near through Jesus Christ. So with such great privileges, why don't we avail ourselves of them more? It should cause us to be less concerned with the trials and disappointments of life. Some of you are facing trials and disappointments, some pretty big ones. 
They, they do loom, loom large now, don't they? But when you lift your eyes above the now and think about what's coming, when you realize what the Lord has promised for his children, when you think about the glories of eternity, the trials of time just sort of shrink down into very manageable size, don't they? Not because we can always manage them, but what really does it matter in the light of all of this? And so let us be less concerned about the trials and disappointments of life, knowing what a glorious future awaits us. And finally, if any of you are outside of Christ but are, or are not sure of your standing with Christ, this should encourage you to believe in Jesus, his death and resurrection and glorious ascension, that you might become partaker of the glorious promises secured for all who trust in him. This is for you who believe in him. It's for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Why would you remain outside of Christ? Why would you go another day under the wrath of God and his condemnation? Why would you delay in availing yourselves of a redemption so great and glorious as this? Come to Christ Believe in Christ. Come to God through faith in Christ. Let your faith and hope be in the God who created you. And you can trust in Him by trusting in His Son. Do it without delay. Come to Him even now, right where you are, shall we pray. Lord God, what a great and glorious Savior. What a great and glorious salvation. What a great and glorious prospect awaits those who trust in you. We cannot take it all in. We cannot comprehend it all. But, oh, Lord, help us to believe. Help us to live in the light of such glorious truths. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.